Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, October 14th, 2021. On today's episode of the show, we're going to have another mini water cooler episode. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm a senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film senior news editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Jacob, the news. Uh, I don't know if you've paid much attention. You're probably, you probably have too much going on. But uh, in terms of like podcasting stuff, the news has just been pretty bleak over the past couple weeks, really. There's not really a ton of stories. There's always stuff happening, but there's not really a ton of stuff that would really be good to talk about. Like, okay, uh, Will Poulter got cast as Adam Warlock in Guardians of the Galaxy 3. That's like, okay, great. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> good for Will Poulter. Good, yeah, good exactly. Actor. Good exactly. Actor. That's about like the extent of the conversation that we can have there. So uh, I just figured it's been, you know, kind of fun to, to check in with people and see what they've been doing, reading, watching, all that kind of stuff. So uh, I'm glad that you could carve out a little bit of time here to, to talk with me uh, about all of those things. So what have you been reading recently, Jacob? Yeah, I'm getting into the uh, Halloween spirit by reading an, uh, a new-ish, a few years old horror novel called Hex. Uh, by um, I may butcher his name. I apologize. Uh, Thomas Old Hoovelt. I believe he's a, a Dutch horror writer. Have you heard of this book, Ben? I have not. No. Uh, it has the most immediately interesting horror premise I've encountered in a long time. One that feels genuinely fresh. Like you know, sometimes like a lot of horror is like, oh, this is a twist on an old thing, or mm-hmm, this is mm-hmm. uh, this one feels like it's um, it feels like it, it it literally is a horror story that could only have been written in the past ten years. Uh, it's about, it was actually, it's written, it was from a European writer and the translation, uh, came with a localization. Uh, the translators, uh, localized it to be to transplanted from Europe to the East coast of the United States. Uh, so that means the writing is occasionally maybe, uh, maybe a bit stiff because of the translation, but the storytelling is good. Yeah. I recommend it. Uh, and it's about a small mountain community, this, this small town, very picturesque, very lovely place to live, except it's haunted by an immortal witch who at one point, uh, was executed hundreds of years ago and now wanders the town. Her eyes have been sewn shut. Her mouth has been sewn shut. Uh, she doesn't actively seek anyone to hurt them, but she'll just be wandering down the street or 
you'll come home from work and she'll be hanging out in your living room just standing there or oh, you'll wake up in the middle of the night and she's, and she's standing up over she's standing over your bed we'll stay there for days at a time not moving and the people who live in this town are just used to it this is just a thing that happens people grow up with the witch they know not to approach the witch they know the witch is there the curse is real enough people in the government are aware of it that they have uh, and they fund a, a small police force who has has installed cameras around the town and they've even built a mobile app where people see the witch they open their app and say Hey, the witch is on the corner of so and so and so and so. Oh, oh hmm. the witch is in the witch is in my living room. So, so everybody knows where the witch is. So if there are visitors in town or uh, a need to be aware of where the witch is, they can have people out there to distract the right people or hide the witch. And they go through all this trouble because if you move to the town or if you're born in the town, you cannot leave the town. If you leave the town, you uh you are driven insane and commit suicide to do the witch's Whoa. curse. Uh, so the story picks up with a group, a group of local teenagers who decide they're. They don't want to be doomed to living in this town cursed by this witch. So they decide that they're going to document the witch as much as possible in secret, put it all online, and make it go viral. And the result meaning that if they make her famous and viral and make the curse public, surely someone will figure it out and have a way out of town. And naturally, things go very wrong for everyone. And that's, oh, man. And that's Hex. And I'm shocked it hasn't been made into a movie yet. Yeah, that sounds like a fantastic movie. Uh, you said this book is a couple years old already? I think 2016. Man, yeah, that sounds like an absolutely killer premise. I'm, I, I don't even really read horror novels, but the, you just sold me on that one. It makes me really, really want to check that one out. Uh, what are you, about like halfway through or something? Yeah, about halfway. Uh, I've, I've reached a point where uh, characters are trying to realize they, they, they've reached a point of no return with, with their bad decisions. Oh, man, <laughs> so. that sounds really great. Uh, well, yes, that is called Hex. And um, I, yeah, I, that sounds like something I should be checking out for sure. Uh, so Jacob, I, I've done two of these already, uh, this week, uh, these types of episodes. So I've pretty much, um, exhausted my list of things that I've been watching, but I did get up at like five 30 this morning to watch, uh, wrath of man, the new guy, Ritchie movie. Chris and loved this movie, didn't he? He did. And, uh, that was part of the reason that I wanted to check it out because, you know, guy Ritchie's very, very hit or miss as a director. Uh, but I, I, from everything that I heard, Wrath of Man was actually one of his good ones. And let me tell you, it is definitely one of his good ones. This feels like one of those movies, one of those just super, super solid action movies from like the mid to late nineties, uh, in the best possible way. So, you know, the, the type of thing where like nowadays an idea like this, which is basically Jason Statham plays this mysterious guy who, um, gets a job at a, a cash truck facility, a cash truck company that uh, where he's like driving around in LA, just transporting cash. It's, it's, it's not, despite the fact that Jason Statham has already starred in a, a, uh, at least a trilogy of movies called the transporter. Uh, this is not part of that franchise. It's a whole different thing, but it's like he's there's a driving... whole subgenre of people in trucks getting in trouble. <laughs> yeah. And so there's all sorts of like robberies and everything. And there's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, twists and turns and and fun stuff and a bunch of great uh, like sort of B-level character actors like Holt McCallany from uh, Mindhunter and Jeffrey Donovan from Burn Notice and Josh Hartnett is in there. Um, Scott Eastwood, who a guy who I really have not liked very much, uh, especially in the, the Fast and Furious franchise when they tried to make him a thing in The Fate of the Furious and that just completely uh, failed. He plays uh, essentially the villain in this movie, and I thought he did a great job. Like he is, he is a much, much better um, sort of menacing villain presence than he is, uh, you know, a um, like a, a bland Hollywood uh, action lead, which seems like the the role that um, the town collectively have, has been wanting him to play, you know, for the past few years. So hopefully Scott Eastwood will will like 
follow this path and have like carve out a, a more interesting career for himself playing, you know, the the scumbag in a bunch of different uh, movies. Maybe he can team up with Gerard Butler or something in, in those sort of dirty crime movies that everybody seems you to like have a your lot. single nice thing to say about Scott Eastwood is the most surprising thing to happen. To you. I know, I know that. I mean, I'm I'm as surprised as you are because he is like I think my least favorite thing about the entire Fast and Furious franchise, which is <laughs> saying quite a lot. Um, but yeah, man, Wrath of Man is is very very good. It's like uh, you know, it's not going to like set the world on fire or anything, but if you're looking for just a really, really solid, um, you know, like I said, kind of twisty action movie that, uh, that, um, maybe takes itself a, a little bit too seriously, but never really, uh, teeters over the line into full on self parody. Um, Wrath of Man is, is it. So, um, I, I think it, I, I rented it on, uh, Amazon. It's, it's probably rentable in all of the, uh, the usual, you know, places right now. Um, I don't think it's streaming anywhere yet, but you can, you know, you can pay whatever it is, five or six bucks or something and rent it. If you're, if you're curious about it and I would recommend it, I I liked it a lot. So, uh, that's the only thing that I've been watching, Jacob. What have you been watching recently? Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, I threatened that my wife went on a three week long family business trip. I would watch all of Dragon Ball Super, the sequel <laughs> yes. series to Dragon Ball Z. And uh, Ben, there are 131 episodes of Dragon Ball Super. And as of this morning, I'm on episode 127. Wow, man. I <laughs> I have no idea how you have the time, Jacob, but uh, I, congratulations to the you. The answer is, is my wife is not here. And rather <laughs> than do anything remotely good with my time, if I'm doing dishes, I have it on. If I'm cleaning the house, I have it on. If I'm doing busy work, I have it on. If I'm organizing board game components, I have it on. And it is, um, oh boy, it, it got really addictive at a point because it, it absolutely is, you know, animated junk food. When you were younger, Ben, did you ever watch Dragon Ball Z? So I did for like one season. It was like one of those things where a bunch of my friends, I, I don't remember, I think I must have, I must have been in junior high. It was probably around eighth grade. Um, I feel like a bunch of my friends were just talking about it nonstop. And I had never experienced, that was my first experience with anime. And I think, I don't even think I watched the full season. I watched like maybe, I don't know, 10 episodes or something of, I watched a little stretch of it and was kind of like, I see what they're talking about. This isn't quite my thing, but I can see how people can get super into this, especially like the addictive nature that you're talking about. It, it really was the type of show, if my memory serves, where like every episode ended on kind of a cliffhanger where you just wanted to instantly come back and see what was going to happen, how it was going to get picked up. There's one image that actually has stayed with me uh, that I remember thinking was really, really cool. And it was... Um, remind me of the lead character's name in uh, Dragon Goku. Ball Z. Goku. He was, uh, I think he was training for some sort of, ch- okay, so um, a little caveat here. I might be getting some of these details wrong. Uh, he was training for some fight or something and he was in space and he uh, was living on some sort of um, spacecraft and had the ability to control the gravity settings on the on the spacecraft. And he was doing like uh, the equivalent of push-ups, but if he was completely upside down where like he was doing full body pushups, like only his hands were touching the ground and everything else was completely vertical above him. And he had 
uh, cranked the gravity up to like, you know, as high as it could go. And he was doing, he was working out that way. So then when he would get back down onto like earth or whatever planet that he was on, where he was going to fight this person, he could move at like super fast speeds. And I was like, oh man, that's a really cool concept that I've never seen executed that way before. So that is the only thing about Dragon Ball Z that has stuck with me after all these years uh, in the, you know, 10 or 12 episodes that I probably watched as a kid. You remember that vividly because that's uh, Goku's on his way to planet Namek to rescue his friends from free. Okay. Yeah, I have no idea what any of that means, but uh, but yeah, it was cool. Uh, but I guess the the, the quick pitch uh, to anybody about Dragon Ball Super is that Dragon Ball, the original show, is about young young kid named Goku who uh, and who's wants to be the strongest person on Earth. He, he beats up everybody on, everybody on Earth across series of adventures, <laughs> and then in Dragon Ball Z, you learn that Goku's an alien, so he ends up beating up everybody across the galaxy on a series of adventures. And Dragon Ball Super, the sequel series from, I think it launched five years ago, wrapped two years ago. Uh, it's about uh, Goku beating up everybody across the multiverse. Because <laughs> 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 every time Goku uh, meets a new villain who's more powerful than him, they got to find a, a reason for him to become more and more powerful. To the point where he's literally fighting actual gods wow. in Dragon Ball Super. Uh, and it, as a kid, I always in, uh, liked all the Dragon Ball Z fighting. And always get annoyed when they were like antics episodes, like mm. like this infamous episode where where Goku's wife wife forces this you know alien martial artist to go get a driver's license because she wants she's tired of driving him everywhere. <laughs> and as, as a kid, I was like, "Why are you wasting your time with this driver's license episode?" But as I'm adult, I'm like, as an adult, I'm like, "Yeah, driver's license episode." Um, <laughs> I think Dragon Ball Super does a good job of balancing that, and there's a lot of fighting. There's so much fighting uh, as you expect from a show, but based on fighting, but there's also a lot of dumb antics. There's a lot of characters doing really really dumb stuff. Like there's a <laughs> like a character I hate as a kid, but who I love as an adult. His name is Mr. Satan. And he's essentially, what if a professional wrestler was, was the most famous person on earth and he got the credit for all of the things the actual heroes did. Uh, and he's essentially, <laughs> and he ends up like being the father-in-law of one of the main characters. He's actually a good dude at heart and all the main, all the main heroes don't care. He gets credit for it. So he has it's the entire, his entire subplot that the entire show is trying to maintain the illusion that he's a skilled martial artist. And when he absolutely is not, and I find him absolutely hilarious. He's such a stupid character. And every time he's on screen, I'm, I'm like laughing my butt off because he is just, uh, this He's literally the exact opposite reason most people will watch the show, and that's why I find him funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's um, I know I, I learned that the show is controversial amongst fans, and I, I've, yet, I've yet to find a coherent reason why. Uh, I will say that the uh, final chunk of the show, the final forty episodes or so, involves the king of the multiverse putting together a tournament of universes, uh, where each universe puts together uh, ten fighters, uh, and it's a, it's a battle royale to the last person standing. And uh, whatever universes get defeated, get destroyed, wiped out, literally wiped out by the gods of the multiverse. So the last 40 episodes, there's essentially one giant battle royale with 80 different characters across the multiverse, <laughs> all beating each other up. And it's um, increasingly ridiculous and occasionally a lot of the slog. Uh, but at the same time, it, um, it, the show knows what it is. It, it, it has a lot of charm. And Goku himself is incredibly uninteresting. He just His two characteristics are that he's stupid and he likes to fight. Uh, whereas... Other characters around him end up being pretty nuanced and pretty fun for, for you know, goofball, you know, kids anime characters. And I, I will say this much. Um, uh, when they're putting together their, their team for, the, for, this, for this tournament of universes, and they're, they're one fighter short and they need somebody, they literally go into hell and recruit a villain that killed in Dragon Ball Z to come back and fight with them. Wow. And, and it's the equivalent of Luke Skywalker going, I'm going to recruit Darth Vader. It's, it's, that's how it feels. And it ends up being one of these strangely, like, 
one of the most satisfying nostalgic kicks I've had of anything. I think that Dragon Ball Super managed to really, really play my nostalgia like a guitar in a way that I, I found really satisfying. So if you're like me and don't mind temporarily subbing to the Funimation app uh, and want to catch up with all these characters have been, all these goofball characters, uh, who they want to beat up, what they're doing these days, uh, it's all there right now, streaming there. Jacob, the, the way that you described that um, multiversal tournament, I mean, that may sound ridiculous to some of our listeners, but I feel like we're not that far off from like a storyline that is essentially exactly that happening in both the Marvel Universe and the DC Universe, uh, you know, on the big screen. Like both of those uh, companies are going into full-blown multiversal territory in a very, very big way very soon. So uh, if that sounds like too crazy to you, um, I have some bad news for you. Like, buckle up, because that's what the, the next, like, probably, you know, five years of our uh, mainstream blockbuster pop culture is going to look like. <laughs> yeah, uh, but what those won't have is a uh, destroyer cat god named Beerus who spares the Earth because he loves sushi. So <laughs> that, that, okay. that's what Dragon Ball Super has that Marvel doesn't. Oh, man. I know there are so many people around my age that watched Dragon Ball Z, you know, when that was on back in the day. So I'm guessing there's probably a, a pretty significant number of people that were, um, you know, that that you may be speaking directly to, Jacob, of people who, who gave up, you know, right after that point, but who may be curious to, to catch back up with these characters. So the Funimation app is where you can find all that stuff. Um, yeah. And like I said, it, it's, it's all ridiculous and occasionally and more than occasionally really, really stupid. But I'd be lying if I didn't say if I said I wasn't enjoying myself. <laughs> all right. What else have you been watching? Uh, I'm mostly finished with Evil Season 2, which uh, just wrapped up. Have you started watching Evil yet, Ben? I have not. I, I don't subscribe to Paramount Plus, um, and I don't really plan to. So, uh, yeah, I, f- I find myself in a weird middle ground there. Uh, Evil is so good this season. I know some people have um, poked fun at it a little bit because they decided midway through filming the season to make it a Paramount Plus show and not a CBS show. So they went through an uh, yard and some F-bombs to take advantage of it. <laughs> but... This season is so adventurous and so fun and funny uh, and really, really dark. There's a uh, there's a practical gore gag in one episode that was so repulsive that me, a seasoned horror viewer, had to like shield his eyes for a moment. It was so upsetting. Um, that is saying it, a lot. Yeah. Wow. But it's also just a really clever show. I mean, for you don't know, Evil is about a a a uh, agnostic psychiatrist and uh, a a. a Muslim turned atheist, uh, blue collar tech expert, and a priest in training uh, for the Catholic Church, who all are recruited by the, the, the church to essentially go uh, and investigate and debunk uh, miracles and other demonic events. And what's fun about the show is that it is in two seasons in, it has never declared either way. You can you can, you can watch the show. And there's always a scientific explanation for everything, but it's also always a spiritual one. And it does this without feeling like it's hedging its bets. It does it in a way where it feels like uh, it's just a big mystery and each character is so dead set on their read of the situation that you can side with any of them. Uh, and it, so it ends up being really compelling and a good read on whether you think this is, you know, like a really dark thriller or a supernatural horror show or you know, a combination of the two. Uh, I, I love that it just has not laid its cards out. It, it plays its cards very close to the vest while also... Uh, make sure the stories are clear, the characters are clear, even though the mystery uh, is purely one of, you know, actual intent. Like, is there a real satanic conspiracy or is it just a bunch of people who are, you know, really bad people planning? You know, it's a... Man, that uh, sounds so much more interesting than coming down on one side or the other. I wonder if they're going to be able to keep that up for the entire run of the show. Do you think they will? 
I don't know. It's a really good question. I mean, uh, season two in particular has had points where it feels like it's edging so close to one or the other, uh, but it never commits in a way that's, you know, frustrating in a good way, I, I hmm. think. And, and also, I think the show is just so formally interesting. It's really well shot. I really I like how it's costumed. I like how it's set dressed. I like how it plays its perspective and takes big chances. There's an episode where the characters, the team, uh, investigates a uh, a supposed miracle at a um, uh, I, I, God, I don't know the word a, a, a place where monks live. Ben. Oh, like a monastery? Monastery, thank you. They investigated a monastery where a miracle happened, but every single monk there is taking a vow of silence, and the request to take a vow of silence when they're there as well. Ah. So the entire episode is silent, except for like the two scenes where the characters literally leave the grounds of the monastery to whisper plans for two for a few minutes, then return to the episode to keep investigating in total silence. So evil 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 has fun. It has fun with what a TV show can be. I mean, I've called it uh Hannibal meets Law and Order before. I think it's I, mean, I think that's still accurate. Uh because it still is a procedural investigative show that tends to wrap up its mysteries one at a time, even though, even those have a, you know, a larger mythology. Uh, but it's gnarly enough and clever enough. And the filmmaking is, you know, unique enough that I think the, the Hannibal comparisons are, are genuine. All right. Well, speaking of gnarly filmmaking, uh, you've also seen something else recently, right? Yeah. The last thing I want to talk about, uh, VHS 94, that the fourth entry in the uh, found footage horror anthology series uh, it's, you know, it's been seven years since VHS viral, a third one. And I liked the first three. Uh, I think two was the best of the original trilogy. Uh, and it has a segment called Safe Haven, which is one of the best horror <laughs> anythings I've ever seen. Uh, uh, feature film, short film, anthology segment. Safe Haven is incredible. And nothing in VHS 94 is as good as Safe Haven. But I do think this is the most consistent VHS movie with the... Uh, with the exception of the like connecting bits, like the like the little interstitial bits that connect the four main stories, I think that all four stories here are all really really good, and they're all really different. Some are very funny. Uh, so one of them is really big and like uh, explosive and bombastic. One is very small with only two characters set in a single room. And you know they're all the whole gist. You're all watching essentially uh, very bad things that are caught on camera and are now being <laughs> replayed on VHS tapes to uh, for for reasons. And I enjoyed them all. I had a I, uh, Simon Barrett's one in particular, which is literally uh, someone has a camera running at, a, at, a, at somebody's wake and nobody shows up with a wake and, the, and their funeral home employees waiting for something to happen. And then things start happening and it's very, very bad and very, very scary. And I like the simplicity of it. I mean, compared to like other, like the short after it, which is a, a transhumanist cyborg horror body horror story is so incredibly huge and sweeping and like go for broken style and gore and gags. Uh, but it's right next to another story that's just as stripped down as you can be in a horror story, and that those two movie, those two those two segments are in the same movie, along with two others that I also really enjoyed. It's really telling that the VHS movies can pull it off and can essentially recruit a bunch of filmmakers and say, "Hey, the floor is yours. Have fun." And you know, sometimes that doesn't work. I think VHS one is really really hit and miss, but with VHS four, I think they found four winners. It's a really cool idea for a, an ongoing anthology thing. And like you said, there's been such a big gap between the third movie and this fourth one. Do you think that this fourth one sets things up? Is it like a reboot? Like, uh, can you see the, um, you know, uh, does, it, does it feel like more of these movies are on the way? Uh, this was the biggest uh, launch, the biggest premiere ever for the Shutter streaming service where it's streaming. So I, I think we'll give that a win. 
Nice, nice, nice. Okay. Um, all right. Yeah, I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Film Daily. Uh, you can find all of the stuff that we talked about, probably written about in some capacity or another at SlashFilm.com. Uh, Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all of the popular podcast apps. Send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at peter at slashfilm.com. We got a lot, a lot of uh, really nice feedback about the 1,000th episode, so that was great. Um, make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow.